FreeCodeCamp is an online learning platform that takes people from knowing nothing about code to having enough knowledge to build software for a living. We've already done a show with Quincy Larson, the founder of FreeCodeCamp, in which we discussed his motivation for starting FreeCodeCamp. In today's episode, we talk more about the technical architecture of FreeCodeCamp. The economics of running a free interactive platform with thousands of users informs the architectural strategy. FreeCodeCamp does not even have ads, so it needs to be frugal. Berkeley Martinez is the CTO of FreeCodeCamp, and in today's episode, he discusses how FreeCodeCamp works from a technical perspective, including how the site's sandboxed coding environment is built. I really enjoyed having Berkeley over to discuss FreeCodeCamp, and I think you're going to enjoy this episode too. Berkeley Martinez is the CTO of Free Code Camp. Berkeley, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Free Code Camp is an online platform that teaches people to code for free. It's organized as a series of challenges that the Free Code Camp users make their way through. Explain the experience of a camper as they go through Free Code Camp. Sure. We start them out with HTML, CSS, and then we quickly uh, jump them to jQuery and then JavaScript, algorithms. Um, these are mainly to get people familiar with uh, syntax um, and get them familiar with looking at code. Uh, the main bread and butter is the projects. Um, and the projects involve um, a certain number of user stories. And then the the camper or our students um, can implement those user stories in any way they see fit. The early challenges within FreeCodeCamp, when you start onboarding, those are mostly related to the meta tasks of being a programmer and also the meta tasks of FreeCodeCamp. You get onboarded into the community. It shows you the importance of the community, the content within FreeCodeCamp and the Medium channel. And What's the importance of getting the camper acquainted with the overall community before they even start coding? Sure. Well... The most important part of coding or becoming a programmer is community. A lot of people can do it in isolation, but it takes them a lot longer. Uh, the aha moment comes when you find a community, find a group of people that you can code with and solve problems together. And you find that you become 10 times better at uh, learning syntax or learning code uh, learning patterns than if you were trying to do it on your own uh, and constantly having to look up things uh, and not knowing what to look up. There's also the meta challenges of learning to become a good Googler or Stack Overflow user. I feel like the early curriculum of Free Code Camp also teaches that as an important thing to be able to do. Like, when you're solving a problem as a programmer on Free Code Camp or otherwise, you need to be good at Googling. There seems to be a challenge in getting people to recognize that the cycle of problem solving doesn't begin with having a problem and then asking somebody. It begins with having a problem and then asking Google. Like how do you how do you how do you acquaint people with that process with the proper cycle of solving a problem? There are definitely two methods that a lot of new coders go about trying to solve a problem. 
And the first one isn't usually search Google because a lot of times uh, you don't know what to search. But uh, what a lot of people do is they'll just hammer through it, trying different things, uh, changing a line of code or a character until something works. Um, then the second part is definitely the faster way is doing the Google way is where you search uh, and hopefully know what to, what term to search for. Uh, and finding the answer, not just the answer itself, but the explanation of why that answer fits. Um, we like to promote the idea of first asking questions, though, and not just on Google, but uh, asking the community itself. We have a very active uh, Gitter community, a very real-time uh, way to get answers. And a lot of people there that are answering questions are fellow campers that have gone through the same problems. And then the second uh, or the approach after that is to search Google in case the uh, real people fail. It sounds like I had the optimal process totally reversed because, well, when I was going through school, I felt like I got trained to ask Google the question and then ask a classmate or another person in the computer lab. It sounds like with Free Code Camp, you actually encourage people to ask each other questions before asking Google. Yeah, it's definitely the, the community aspect makes it... Uh makes the learning process stronger. But then there are also, there are also things like, uh, for instance, a ternary expression, right? How, how do you search for that? Like expression, question mark, expression, expression. Like if you, unless you know the term ternary expression, you don't know what to search for. If you see that in someone else's code, you're like, what is this? And then you try to Google it. You know, Google's not going to be optimized for that kind of search. Um, so the easiest solution is to go on a live chat or if you're in class, you ask your buddy next to you, Hey, do you know what this means? Like, what is this thing doing? Mm-hmm. Right. That's why we encourage people to ask the community first, uh, or the Gitter room or the forum we have before going to Google. If it's something like that. The early steps and challenges of free code camp are related to these meta aspects of programming and the community and the learning process that the camper is going to go through, eventually you get into coding itself. At what point in the curriculum do you actually get into coding, and what are the first steps that a camper goes through in the coding process? So after the onboarding, um, it, the first things we introduce them in are uh, HTML. So not exactly coding, but getting used to HTML tags and looking at HTML, and then CSS, uh, getting used to the CSS syntax. Um, and then we introduce them to a little bit of JavaScript before we go into jQuery. And now this is something we face a lot of criticism for because we jump into jQuery before we really teach them JavaScript. And this is something that we're remedying uh, now. So pretty soon, um, within the next month or two of recording, uh, we should see a, a new version of the site with uh, uh, a much expanded curriculum. And this will change the order of things where you'll start out learning JavaScript first um, and jQuery uh, later on within the context of frameworks. Why is it problematic to start with jQuery before JavaScript? Because jQuery isn't JavaScript, really. And this has been the trend for a long time where people would learn jQuery and become jQuery developers, but not necessarily JavaScript developers. Now JavaScript has come into its, has come into its own um a lot of browsers, uh, or I should say the the web spec has a lot of uh, document querying syntax that's very similar to jQuery, so it makes uh, a lot of the nice things that jQuery provided obsolete. Uh, not completely obsolete, jQuery is still a little 
uh, better at some things. Uh, but you can get away with doing just JavaScript and using methods that are universal to most most modern browsers. So jQuery isn't the greatest way to go about teaching JavaScript in the first place, especially now since JavaScript um, is revolved around frameworks, right? Learning JavaScript means learning a framework like Angular or React, uh, and then learning the concepts of those patterns that those frameworks provide, not necessarily just querying the DOM and then changing the DOM. That's certainly true, though the jQuery querying the DOM model of learning can be simple. It can be perhaps simpler than working with a framework. And what is appealing about that to me is you get people excited about programming because things are simple and they're understandable at first. Is there a trade-off between getting people that quick win of experiencing programming, experiencing mutating the DOM with jQuery and teaching them things in a sensible, ordered way that builds them the correct model of programming? So the, the, the loss there, you're, you're saying, is that you don't see the immediate feedback, yeah. right? Which is, the I think, the thing that draws so many people to web development exactly. is the immediate feedback. Yeah. But you don't necessarily lose that by right. not doing jQuery first because you can still do uh, DOM querying and DOM changing without jQuery. That's right. the beauty of the modern, modern web. And I mean modern in the context of the last uh, two years, three years, we have... Uh, document dot get element by class and mm. and uh, these methods around the same idea of querying the DOM mm. and then you can still change the DOM just like you would outside of jQuery or with jQuery but you can do it outside of jQuery just by learning JavaScript. Now you learn just how objects and methods work and you learn about the document object and the window object and then you can do all the fancy things that jQuery does uh, without having to also teach jQuery. So we've talked through an overview of how the camper gets started with learning Free Code Camp, and I did an episode with Quincy Larson last year about Free Code Camp, and we talked through a lot of this idea of the curriculum process. I'd like to get your perspective on the architecture of how Free Code Camp is built. Can you give me a high-level view for the architecture? Uh, so the current architecture is a pretty typical uh, Node app. So we have um, Loopback as our backend, which is built on Express. Um, it builds uh, our models using JSON, and then it provides us with a really nice uh, REST API for our front-end app to use. Uh, for the most part, the app has been um, uh, a plain uh, Jade rendered on the server template then becomes a very minimal jQuery app. Um, the actual challenging parts is, are the running of the challenges in the browser. And we used to do this with web workers. Our current implementation is doing everything in uh, isolated iframes. Mm. Um, the very next iteration uh, that's coming about is going to be entirely React, um, where all the challenges... Uh, all the UI is built with React, uh, with Redux, uh, and then using RxJS to handle all our side effects. Uh, we're still running the challenges uh, within an iframe just to isolate those from the environment. But now the framework that puts together a user's code 
and uh, puts them with a test and then runs the tests. Uh, it's a little more complex now because we want to be a, a little more generic. So now we can do things like SAS and React on top of what we already do, jQuery, just plain JavaScript, HTML, CSS. Um, so our backend is loopback. Uh, and then our database is MongoDB running in uh, a replica set with uh, two replicas and our arbiter. You're talking about the sandbox that the coder can experiment with and write their tests. So in a given challenge, the coder, their task might be write an HTML blob that says hello world or write a blob of JavaScript that does this. There are a lot of different websites that are doing this these days where you have like a sandboxed experience where you're learning to code in the browser. What are the challenges to developing that type of sandbox environment? Yeah, it is a very difficult challenge. Um, and you ended up doing it in an iframe, so maybe you could explain why the iframe was a good fit for the abstraction of a sandbox to code in. Sure. So originally we were doing them in web workers. Right. Um the issue with, with web workers is everything needs to go in as a string and then come out as a string. Um, it's a, there's very limited ways to get functionality, like methods, into and out of web workers. Uh, on top of that, a web worker isn't a full DOM environment, uh, so we ended up having to mock a lot of things uh, or make things, do tricky things to make things like jQuery work because you don't have the DOM environment. You have to prepare that. Um, it ended up just giving us a tons of headache, uh, tons of headaches, uh, and so I did a little testing with iframes, where instead of building this long string and then running it in an eval in a web worker, uh, now we build this long string and run it, uh, uh, compile it together in HTML, and then open an iframe and then use that HTML as the document for the iframe. Mm. And then the tests, instead of being concacted with that long string, are inputted into a method in that iframe. And then that method takes that string of tests and then evals them and then runs the test against in that environment, the, the iframe environment. So now it's closer to what you would expect uh, an actual uh, site, the way an actual site works. Um, but now we get a lot of things for free, like the DOM is there, um, jQuery works out of the box, and um, we can shut down and uh, boot up new iframes easily and not have to worry about um, uh, CSP issues, right? Oh, oh, things with uh, web workers not supporting. or We have a lot of issues with web workers and CSP and blobs. What is CSP? Um, content security policy. So Chrome especially is very strict about these things, and web workers act are trigger different security aspects than iframes. Interesting. And um, there are cool things that we want to do with web workers that uh, we couldn't, and we couldn't figure out why uh, Chrome would always say this is not valid. Are there limitations to the browser approach? I've had a number of conversations with my friend Srini, who works at a company called DataQuest. DataQuest has learned data science in the browser, and my understanding of their backend is whenever you're doing a coding challenge in the browser, 
your code is actually getting run on a Docker container. So they spin up a Docker container for your sandbox. Did you consider something with more of a backend approach rather than the the heavy client sandboxed in the browser approach? Uh, yeah, we've considered it a couple times. The biggest issue with, with those approaches are costs. And so Free Code Camp is in a very different situation than very, a lot of these okay, uh, websites are where uh, we're not VC funded. We don't plan on ever taking uh, VC money um, or selling advertisement or anything like that. Um, and that means that we need to keep our costs down as much as possible. And doing things like running a Docker container for every uh, camper that's running their code. And, you know, this happens multiple times per camper, you know, per minute. Um, the easiest solution there is to run everything in the browser. So then you offload the compute power from uh, your dedicated servers to the the camper's browser. So that introduces its own set of problems, but uh, the cost is the biggest biggest problem for us. Sure. And so we definitely can't do anything like that. And that running stuff on the back end also introduces issues of security. If you're going to run someone else's code, uh, you have to do it in, in something like a Docker container, right, where you can just shut down that thing really easily and not, and not have any doubts about security. Mm-hmm. But you can't really do it any other way. You have to run in some sandbox that can't be, can't affect the rest of your production. Are there? Do you feel like there are security vulnerabilities in the free code camp model of sandboxing? So we we absolutely try not to do anything that would involve sure. losing data or manipulating data uh, outside of the context of a user updating the user data. And so the only vulnerabilities that we found. Um, that we quickly patch up are things like um, uh, CSP, not CSP, but um, CSRF. Um, so we have very strong CSRF, which means we are limited in the kind of things that we can do in the browser. So, for instance, we're moving to use something called uh, a product called GoMix, which is really interesting. You can create a, a Node server and uh, write code for Node right in the browser without having to ever touch the command line. And it gives you a dedicated URL to a server. And so we want to use this as our like API challenges. So someone could write their an API using GoMix, give us the URL, and then we can write AJAX requests to those URLs to test whether their APIs are working correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the security issues with that is uh, now we need to allow challenges to make AJAX requests so that the tests can run against... Uh, uh, an origin that is not free code camp. So we whitelist GoMix, uh, but then this introduces another issue. If someone were to create a challenge or run a challenge, um, save their code in this challenge in a malicious way. So for instance, um, whenever you complete a challenge, we save your code so that uh, you can use it at some, or you can check it out at some later point in time. Uh, we also give you a URL with that, uh, your code challenge code encoded in that URL. And so you can then share this challenge URL with anyone else. Uh, so now we allow AJAX requests to uh, GoMix. Someone were could potentially create a malicious GoMix URL, a server there, and then create a malicious uh, solution to a challenge and then share that with someone in the context of, hey, I need help. And then that malicious... Um, Script could be loaded in the client's code or the client's browser and then hit a specific go mix URL and then do something malicious. So in order to combat that, now we disallow 
um, challenges to be saved with the GoMix URL. Mm-hmm. So now if you try to type in, I try to save a challenge with the GoMix URL, even in a comment, it'll be stripped out. So those are the kind of security issues we're dealing with. Is that the hardest part of the Free Code Camp project, the challenge sandbox and security risks associated with that? Not necessarily the security risks, but the building of challenges okay. and making it in such a way that it's generic so that we can do jQuery, sure. we can do React, we can even do SAS. Um, these things all need to be done in the same framework. And so um, the the next version, not the current version, but the next version is, is done in such a way that um, we have this idea of virtual files. Hmm. Uh, and I took inspiration from Gulp, actually. So Gulp has this idea of virtual files. They're called vinyl files. And what we ended up with is very similar. It's not exactly the same. Uh, doesn't have doesn't need all the same aspects that Gulp does because Gulp interacts with the file system. And we don't, so we don't need to keep uh, track of file paths, but we keep track of file names and file extensions. And so each time you uh, edit code in your editor while you're in Free Code Camp, uh, you're actually editing sort of this virtual file where it has a file name, it has an extension, uh, and it has context or I'm sorry, context contents um, and then we update the contents and then we keep a history of of that and then when you finally hit submit uh, we take that file or multiple files uh, in, in future versions and then compile them together in a similar way that webpack would compile them into one single file so if you're doing html um, we compile them into just a plain string and then put it in a body tag and then add a header and a footer um, and then send that to an iframe. If you're doing JavaScript, we compile your code together and then put that in a script tag and then put that in a body tag and put that in an iframe. Same thing with SAS. I want to talk a little bit more about the curriculum. The current curriculum model has four stages. You can start with front-end certification and then get back-end certification and then data visualization and then full-stack engineering certification. The most interesting aspect of that sequence I find is the data visualization element. So when I was learning programming, I never focused on data visualization at any point. Why is data visualization a crucial step to learn for somebody who is on track to becoming a full-stack engineer? Sure. So uh, the first thing I want to point out is um, even though we list them out in a linear fashion... You don't necessarily need to do them in a linear fashion. You can do them in with whatever order you feel like, whatever order you feel comfortable with. And people will do this, right? Some people will just do the front end and the back end or front end and then the frameworks. Um, the reason we put data viz um, after the front end is the data viz is really uh, UI heavy. It's building interesting UIs using large data sets. And we think that's important to people to kind of understand what that process is, not necessarily be an expert at it. Um, we think the most important part of FreeCodeCamp is developing the projects, not necessarily the projects for certain curriculum or certain parts of that. Um, so if you don't feel comfortable doing the data science or data viz part of it, then uh, I say go for backend or frameworks. Uh, we just want to say that even though we think all these things are important, um, do what you feel most comfortable with that you can progress 
as quickly as possible through, get to the projects, because the projects are going to be where you're going to learn the most. When you joined Free Code Camp, how did the architecture look and how has it changed since then? So when I joined, it was pretty similar to what it is now in production. Um, it was an express app, not loopback. And we were using Mongoose at the time. Uh, so we still had a MongoDB database. Um, and the front end was mostly Jade and jQuery, um, but with a few elements of Angular, mostly for the forms. Um, the biggest reason I came on is there were so many issues with the code base. Um, and while these issues um, didn't take the site down, right, so the site was still working, uh, there were constant things like um, there's a common error with Express that if you send down a response for a client and then there's an error in some process that you left running, you'll get this error, um, cannot send after headers have been sent or something like that. Uh, when I came on, the, the, this was the first thing I noticed is we had tons of those. Uh, and that was because there were a lot of endpoints that were sending the user data while sending, for instance, uh, an email out using NodeMailer. And you still have a callback with NodeMailer. NodeMailer is going to give you an error if it can't send out for whatever reason. But uh, these weren't being handled. They were just being left open-ended. And so when the, these things do error, um, they just throw into the wild. And what ends up happening is that process itself gets shut, shuts down and then reboots. And so while the site was still working and still functioning just fine, um, you have a less, you, you don't have the performance you would because you have servers constantly having to reboot. Um, the other thing we wanted is, uh, an API because we wanted to be able to, um, let users hit that API if they wanted to. Um, and we want to do it in such a way that it's, it's not a big maintaining hassle for us. So one of the, uh, interesting challenges we have is we're such a small team. We try to keep costs down. We can't really hire anyone. Um, but we are open source and we use the open source repo as a way to, uh, as a way for people to, uh, learn to contribute to open source and further their knowledge of becoming a programmer. And so we want to make the code base itself easily understandable and easily maintainable so that anyone can come in and contribute to the code base. So Loopback really helped us achieve that because we could still create uh, a complex REST API and just rely on a couple of JSON files to do that for us. You're talking about the open source project. Free Code Game is a massively popular open source project. I think there's like 529 contributors. What are some of the challenges of managing a large open source project? Definitely early on, we weren't sure we were going to be able to do it because it was essentially me and Quincy managing the repo. And so reading all the issues, closing issues that weren't real issues, uh, directing people to the appropriate um, solutions for their problems, and then fixing actual bugs. And so finding all these bugs and fixing these things. And I don't remember the exact date, but it was becoming really unmanageable. And so we obviously needed a solution. Um, and um, my idea was just the purpose of the repo itself. It shouldn't be just somewhere to put our code, but it should be a learning experience. And so 
uh, we came up with the idea of just letting campers contribute and letting campers manage uh, the code base and manage the repo and manage the issues, manage PRs. And so that's when we first started adding uh, campers that we, we have seen um, active in the community. Ah. And this is the point where we realized that we could do it as long as we empower the community to help us. Mm. Uh, and by empowering people, we made the job of maintaining an open source project easier. And this is true of any open source project. Um, if you follow the um, benevolent dictator model, where you just have one person in charge of a repo and they're in charge of merging PRs, uh, what ends up happening is that person gets burnt out. And then the project either dies or stagnates. If it's an important project, it'll like limp along. Um, there's this idea of the open, open source model. And that's the, that's the idea of if you contribute a significant PR, uh, a PR that makes significant changes, adding a significant feature and not just like a typo or something like that, uh, then you should automatically be added to the repo with, um, with right privileges. So that it gives the person contributing to the repeal a sense of ownership. Hmm. And then hopefully they continue on contributing and also helping manage issues and testing things so that the project can live on as long as possible, as long as it's being used and useful. You're saying if you contribute significantly, that is a proof of stake. And so you should be given privileges to merge other people's pull requests, which which gets you away from the bottleneck of the benevolent dictator approach. Especially if for, there's a lot of projects that just have so many people depending on them, and you just, the benevolent dictator model just doesn't work in the long term. Everyone gets burned out. Uh, everyone has, you know, life get in the way. But if you spread out the responsibility of maintaining an open source project, to the community itself, yeah. then the, the project itself lives on past the original creator or the original maintainer. And um, I hope to see this model adopted by uh, other projects that are um, that we rely on in yeah. the community. Uh, just to clarify, I didn't come up with this. I <laughs> just realized it might sound like I did, but I didn't come up with this. I, I can't remember exactly who it came up with. I think it's like Open, open source dot org, I believe. Yeah. Do you also focus on making it easy to onboard in the open source community if you want to? Like having issues that are super simple, always have a set of issues that are super simple to resolve. So if somebody wants to get started as a contributor to Free Code Camp, all they do is open up the beginner issues, uh, you know, um, bug fix tab and and they figure out what to solve from there sure we have the help wanted tag and we have the beginners only tag so these are issues that have been deemed uh simple enough for anyone to contribute to uh specifically the beginners only um and we realize that a lot of people coming to the free code camp repo this might be their first time interacting with this idea of open source and this idea of contributing to other people's projects. And we want to make that process, that learning experience, uh, as easy as possible and as friendly as possible. So not only do we have the help wanted and the beginners only tag, uh, but we also have a lot of helpful documentation on how to contribute to an open source project. And we do this because um, 
I don't know if you remember your first uh, PR to an open source project, but it is kind of nerve wracking. Um, you're I've actually never made one. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, maybe free cook camp should be your first <laughs> one. <laughs> but anyways, it is, it is kind of nerve wracking because you're, you're, you're just learning. You're just starting out. Yeah. Um, you're just learning kind of the unspoken rules. Sure. Uh, and you want to help out because you're using this thing. You're getting all this awesome software, all this awesome utility for free. Um, and you want to contribute. So if you open a PR and you find a bug, you open a PR to a project you're using. Um, then you wait and then the waiting process itself is kind of nerve wracking because you don't know if the, the person maintaining the project is going to be like, no, this is dumb. I don't want this closed PR or, 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 you know, you never know. Someone might respond badly. Like, um, I think the one example is the, the Linux, um, the Linux distro. Um, the person maintaining that is uh, notorious for being, uh, I guess, grumpy to put it in a nice way. Yeah. But anyways, we, we, we try to help them in every step of the way so sure. that they find contributing and finding their first PR, um, simple and, and, and easy and welcoming so that hopefully they continue on, not just at uh, contributing to free code camps repos, but uh, any other open source project. When you joined Free Code Camp, had the project already migrated to using React as the front end, or were you part of the refactoring process to React? Uh, yeah, so we, it was still Angular, still jQuery on the front end. Okay. Um, there were talks about it. Um, this is before. But you're still Angular right now. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. And now we're, we actually have bits of it in React. Okay. Bits that so are React in production. Migration. Yeah, but the main um, bread and butter is the the challenges framework. So that still isn't React. Um, uh, it's little bits of jQuery uh, and mostly JavaScript, just plain oh. JavaScript, doing the, the heavy uh, framework building. Um, when I joined, though, we talked about doing this and ways to do it. And I think the, the main selling point was moving to Loopback so that we have this API. And then we can move to maybe a client-side-only app that does all this heavy stuff on the on the client and then we just maintain an API server. And then as we, as React became more popular um, and our frustration with teaching and using Angular grew, we decided just to completely abandon Angular. And at the time we were using, I think, Angular 1.2 and we decided just to abandon it completely and use React wherever possible. So um, now we use uh, server-side rendering React. We use uh, Redux and we use um, Redux observables uh, for our front-end stuff and our server-side rendering stuff. And we still use Jade for some of the more static pages. And so we're doing something pretty interesting now where we're moving to completely static pages for everything besides the challenges. And so um, we use Nginx to proxy some of the pages. So we've moved our... Uh, shop. So we have a shop where we sell merchandise to help us cover the cost of servers. Uh, this used to be part of the actual uh, repo. Uh, and it used to be rendered by our node servers and sent down as plain HTML. Um, but this meant that our shop was tied to our release cycle for production. And because we have this giant move planned, that meant uh, we had to update production just to update the shop which seemed 
uh, a weird thing to do to, to couple these things. So uh, we moved the shop to a static page where it's just a static HTML page um, onto GitHub Pages, and then we proxy that using Nginx. What did React get right? Why did so many of the JavaScript frameworks that came before it fail to get the abstractions right and the whatever React does that makes it so useful from your point of view? I mean, I've been doing shows on React for the last year and a half or so and hear varying responses from people, things like its relationship to functional programming or event-driven architecture. What is useful about React from your point of view? So I'm coming from the the learner's point of view, not necessarily the... Um, somebody who has learned or somebody who you want to teach? Someone who is teaching and someone who has learned. Okay. Because uh, when I first started learning React, I didn't really consider myself uh, a developer, maybe. Right? I was developing, I was making money as, the, as a freelancer, but, you know... I guess it's, it's an imposter syndrome. I still felt like sure. an imposter. But when I started learning React, I felt like I was actually learning, uh, learning code, learning, learning JavaScript. And so one of the frustrations we had with Angular is just teaching Angular was difficult because we were teaching concepts that were unique to Angular. So, um, di- directives and right. transclude and all these angular terms um they're they're more complicated than they need to be whereas when react came onto the scene i think what made the big difference is learning it is not about learning uh, react right other than jsx but even that is just learning um sort of an abstract dom syntax but the other stuff around it is still uh, javascript you're learning to build classes you're learning to build functions um and that's it Right, you're just calling methods on classes, on instances. You're not you're not building directives and um, bundling templates, and it's it's specifically JavaScript, and that's that for me is the big selling point. Because you're not teaching tons of other things on top of that. Is there anything that campers, new programmers, have trouble understanding in React? Many themes of difficulties. I think JSX. JSX itself is maybe the most difficult thing, and that's because if you learn the DOM and uh, you're just starting out, then you learn this JSX thing that looks really close to the DOM, but it's it's kind of like the the uncanny valley where it's, if it's if it's close enough, um, it, it if it's not exactly the same, then it then it you get confused, right? Where it's far enough, then if it's different enough, then it's easy to learn. And when it gets closer, it's just, oh, this doesn't work. Why doesn't this work? It works in the DOM. So, for instance, um, uh, HTML class, right? So the the class attribute in JSX is class name, one word with a capital N. Um, so uh, the HTML attribute for, um, as in uh, a label for some ID, right? Um, in JSX, it's actually html4 so html capital f or um, things little things like that can trip people up um, the biggest thing with react that was really difficult for people is just not react itself but the ecosystem around it so bundling uh, so webpack um, 
state management like Redux, those things uh, can bring a lot of confusion. Um, but we have this awesome thing now called uh, Create React App, which gives you a really nice starting point to start building React apps without necessarily thinking about the pipeline uh, around it, the production around it, or the bundling around it, just to get right into building React apps. I want to zoom out a bit and talk about FreeCodeCamp as an organization and its mission. I talk to Quincy sometimes about... Quincy Larson, by the way, the founder of FreeCodeCamp. Um, we have conversations about the long-term goals of FreeCodeCamp and particularly competitors. So there's like lots of competitors in the learn-to-code space, um, whether you're talking about Udacity or Coursera or maybe coding boot camps. There are a wide variety of ways that somebody who wants to learn to code can learn to code. Do you think of these other organizations as competitors, or do you think of this as just a big communal effort to get people to learn to code? How do you think about the other organizations? Well, generally... I don't think about them. Don't we about we them, compare yeah. the amount of traffic going to these other uh, to what people would call competitors, but the issue is, um, for the most part, they have some system to charge users. And I think uh, once you put uh, once you start charging for these services, then your customer base sort of starts changing because it becomes obvious that not everyone has the ability to pay. Right, not everyone is uh, has the benefit of being in a big city where um, they have tons of services that are provided for them. Some people are in rural areas; um, they don't make much money, or they can't just spare that kind of things. Or the time it takes for these competitors, uh, or the time it takes to work on sites on these competitors, and then spend the money on top of that. Um, the one thing that we do think about a lot is the uh, the long term of free code camp and the goal is to um, work the company around free code camp in such a way that we can sustain free code camp itself indefinitely um, without ever charging anyone uh, any of our uh, campers anyone that's using the process to learn or any of the nonprofits that benefit from our campers work. Um, so in, in that aspect, places like, um, well, I guess I don't want to name any other companies, but uh, we don't think of them too much in that aspect, right? And, and then a lot of companies that do charge, um, they're realizing that charging uh, the learners isn't really the best way to make money. And what ends up happening is they, they try to find other ways around it. So I think one way that one of these companies is doing it is through uh, uh, charging corporations, right, for sure. sure. So they, I think they got bought out by a bigger company that... So charging corporations for... For, for material oh. and just going through okay. um, going through that process, the corporate corporate training process sure. so so one interesting thing that Quincy told me once is is once you divorce the people paying for services uh, from the people consuming those services then the price of those services ends up skyrocketing and I think that's why a lot of these companies end up going towards um, the, the corporate route because yeah. what ends up happening is the corporates pay for these services and then the people consuming it are their employees they're sure. not they're not paying for it they don't know the dollar amount and then it's hard to judge the value for these things. Free Code Camp is 
a purist organization in this model of not raising money, not doing ads or Patreon or anything at this point. Um, maybe that will change in the future. What do you think about, you know, doing something for short-term profit as a means to an end? Is there, uh, is it really not worth it to do that? I mean, you, maybe if you were able, if you could raise some debt or raise some money or um, do some kind of Kickstarter campaign uh, in service of growing faster, um, or I, I don't know, or maybe the money just would not make it grow faster at all. Um, why, why the purest approach? So the, the growing faster is interesting because we actually are growing pretty fast. Even for a company that has zero investment, right. um, we're growing day in, day out. Um, so, so the growing is not too big of an issue. Um, but once you, so for instance, raising money through VC, once you raise money through VC, then the incentive changes, right? So right now, our stakeholders are the campers themselves. Um, but once we take VC money, for instance, uh, now the stakeholder is someone that's given us money and is expecting a 10 times or a hundred times return on that investment. So then that might change the way we perceive the campers. We might see them as a means to an end to get more money. And that's definitely something we don't want. We don't ever want that to happen, right? So we want, that's why you always guarantee. You're very cognizant of your own incentives as created by the financial structure of your company. Right. So anytime you take money from someone else, even if it's through like a Kickstarter campaign, that changes the incentive. Um, then we become a company that is focused on raising money through Kickstarter. So we make a Kickstarter and then down the line, we need more money. Now we're going to make another Kickstarter. And then we focus around promoting that Kickstarter and driving people to our Kickstarter. And that's not driving people to learning to code. So we want to... we aware of these things and we definitely you know it'd be nice to to make money but we we definitely want to do it in some way that doesn't affect the campers that so free code camp is always there for anyone that wants to learn what i love about free code camp is that fact that it is always there to learn and if you want to make a career change to being a programmer you can do that one thing that's interesting right now we have in the economy is all of these jobs that are getting automated, some people might say outsourced, but I tend to think of automation as the more truthful word. And the techno-utopian in me says, okay, if people get automated out of a job, they can retrain as a programmer. It's not that hard. Go on free code camp, learn to be a programmer. There is some narrative, maybe it's just in America, maybe this is a global thing. People don't want to retrain. There are a lot of people who will not retrain. Uh, even if the technology is there, they have a pessimistic outlook. They have a lack of faith in themselves to be able to retrain. I think we have all these highly damaging narratives around neuroplasticity disappearing by the time you're 23 or 24 and you can no longer retrain and you have to double down on the small set of skills you've learned before your early 20s, which there's no proof that that's actually the way that the human brain works, no convincing proof. As somebody who is heavily involved in a project that helps people to retrain and to learn a new skill set that gets them a new lease on life and, you know, 
you can look at Free Code Camp and find all kinds of testimonials from people who have retrained and found new jobs as programmers. How do you think about this this differential between people who believe that they can retrain and want to retrain, and then this vast amount of people who have lost hope or are unwilling to retrain? Because I mean, you even look at just I, I I hate I don't want to bring politics into this, but like the tr- the Trumpism, like you the the you know whether you're for or against Donald Trump, a lot of people who voted for Trump are these people who have lost hope and they don't feel like they can retrain at all. Um, so as somebody who's like heavily engaged with this group of people who are retraining or are not or are in the process of going from a place where they feel like they are not useful to a place where they might potentially be more useful if they can retrain. I don't know. Is this a mindset shift that people need to make? Or um, I don't know. Do you think that my framing of it is accurate? Well, it could be It could be that a lot of people who, who don't have that mindset of retraining, um, that desperation will, will trigger that, that change in mindset. Um, and I've found that for me, that that's happened a couple times in my life where really? I was in a desperate situation and, you know, I didn't think about maybe I can't be a programmer. I just thought about maybe this is a way to make money and, you know, not be broke. So, uh, maybe that will trigger that kind of thing. But there is definitely an interesting, uh, idea there, like that maybe, uh, people who voted for Trump, uh, are looking for that that help so they don't have to retrain. I I don't know if there is really any hope for people who are in those jobs that are going to be automated. And I think truck drivers is like the biggest the biggest thing people talk about right now is because it's such a large population in the US, truck drivers, that potentially in the next five, ten years could be out of a job. Um I am certain that we have former truck drivers in our alumni, right, that are now uh, developers. I think, I truly think anyone can learn anything new at any point in life. I don't think that there's the myth of once you pass a certain age, your brain is set in a certain way. I don't think that's true. There's been tons of um, evidence to the contrary of Mm -hmm. people who have, you know, there's this the story of a person who had a, a professor who had a stroke um, in his 60s, I believe, um, lost essentially half of his brain um, and then became um, essentially couldn't take care of themselves. They were an infant essentially at that point, right? A human, um, an adult mind trapped in an infant's body because wow. they couldn't control their body. And then they retrained themselves. Right to use their body again by starting out as an infant using infant toys and eventually learning to become a fully functioning adult again. So I think stories like that prove that you can teach yourself and turn into something else if you're in that kind of desperate situation. But I think maybe that you you need that desperate situation to trigger that change. There's there needs to be some catalyst to trigger that change. And I think maybe that's maybe that's the common factor of campers. There's a um, outside of the, the people who have the free time to learn something new, just want to learn something new. Maybe the people who have full-time jobs and a family that they're taking care of, maybe the desperation is they're, they're living check, uh, check to check and they want to make that change because 
they want to get out of the situation and into something more prosperous. Maybe that triggers their their need to learn uh, this um, trade, right? Yeah. That'll uh, help them provide for the future. Another thing I've talked to Quincy some about, and this is not closely related to Free Code Camp, but Quincy writes about this and talks about this, is this idea of Facebook potentially destroying the internet. Um, and it, I mean, it's an interesting framing of what Facebook is and where it's going. The idea that it's this closed version of the internet and that the efforts such as internet.org threaten the free and open internet. I've talked to Quincy about this. I argue that this f- framing is based on an over-idealization of the open internet because the open internet is what we have been normalized to. We sort of have this nostalgia towards what we refer to as the open internet. So I find it qualitatively dubious to say that the open internet as we know it is better than the quote, closed internet, as Mark Zuckerberg may be trying to move us towards. What are your thoughts on this area? Have you debated with Quincy about this, or do you agree with him? I I agree with him that Mark Zuckerberg is probably one of the most powerful people uh, in the world right now. Uh, He controls um, probably the biggest platform where people consume media. I don't know how much control he really has over, like, the what people see, right? Because he's it's not like there's someone at a switchboard right. moving cables back and forth as someone visits facebook.com, right? There's algorithms and um, all these servers that are running that that show, and then you have a developer team that's uh, upgrading it and fixing bugs and adding features. So it's not, not like he has his finger on the button, you know, with all the fake news and, like, controlling that stream. Um, he, But he is probably, you know... It, Facebook is probably one of the most powerful companies uh, right now, and he's the head of Facebook and has the controlling uh, shares of Facebook. I think that may change in the future. Uh, who knows? There's a recent story. I don't know exactly all the details, but it was something like he wanted to sell a certain amount of his, uh, Mark Zuckerberg wanted yeah. to sell a certain amount of his shares so that he could use then uh, transfer that money to his foundation right. and then... Um, but then he wanted to change the way the shares work so that yeah. he still has a controlling majority. That's right. And then there's some legal issue he's running into now um, where that that people are angry about that. And now there's a lawsuit, I think, or uh, uh, like the government itself is like, you can't do that because of I can't remember. I don't know the exact details, but this this is one of the reasons why I don't know how big of a deal is it that he controls Facebook is because uh, while he is a very powerful person. There are a lot of there are a lot of other powerful people that are invested in Facebook, and if he makes a move that's contrary to what they want, um, they could organize um, the rest of the people that are invested in Facebook and counteract him. Um, it's it's an interesting idea that he could manipulate people on a large scale. I don't know how practical it is. Um, it is kind of scary that he has so much power. And it is scary when any when any single individual has so much power, and there's no real way to remove him from power. For instance, if he was um, president of the of the United States um, in four years, there would be an election, and there's a possibility that he could be uh, deposed. But if you're the ruling 
person in a company, then you're you're that forever until you make a mistake. Sure. Right. So, um, hopefully, it's not it's nothing bad comes of him being the the leader of Facebook. To wrap up, you and I were talking before this podcast interview about isolation, working in isolation. This has been an increasing topic of importance for me. I think it is important to a lot of the listeners. I think there are a lot of programmers who listen to this show that are sole proprietors or consultants or contractors, and they spend a lot of time working in solitude. And I think this is actually growing in importance as an issue, even beyond the idea of just being a programmer, working in solitude. Um, I've been hearing more and more about the dangers of loneliness and isolation, and maybe that's just because I'm reading about it, and I spend a lot of time isolated, Um, and I don't like it, but I also like running my own podcast business. I know you like running Free Code Camp as CTO, but you don't have an office. I mean, you have a home office. You spend a lot of time in isolation. You were talking about the importance of meetups. Um, How do you deal with that isolation? And um, seeing as this, you know, this trend of remote work and working in solitude is growing, how do you suggest people deal with that isolation on a larger scale? Yeah, I think the, the, one of the biggest reasons I, I go to meetups is just to interact with other fellow human beings, right? So, um, and I was saying this to you earlier is I think this is, this is the reason why the, uh, meetup is so big here in San Francisco is that, uh, one, you have a situation where a lot of people are either, uh, working, uh, in solitary, working at home, for instance, or working in situations where they, uh, may be surrounded by people, but their work is, individualistic or they're coding for for hours on end without without stopping um and then two you have the the companies that just want people to come to their offices so that they could recruit so i think you know that's probably a major factor of why meetup is so big and that's a major factor of why i go to so many meetups is just you meet interesting people um you may spend i spend a lot of time alone and then go to going to these meetups uh, it's just a way to interact with other people. And I've met so many people doing that. Like, that's how I met Quincy is, is I would go to so many meetups and, um, this was like maybe three years ago. Mm. I, and like, I would see him everywhere. And like, he's a, he's a pretty interesting guy. He's, he's not, he's hard to miss. He, he, he always wears like a, like a jogging equipment, like equipment, like, um, I don't know what you'd call it. Like, just track wicking, pants. yeah, track pants, like wicking shirts, and he runs everywhere. And so every time I would see him, if he just arrived, he'd be just dripping in sweat because he just runs everywhere. And then, like, you know, I remember one time I asked him, like, uh, do you want like a paper towel or something? Because you just, and he was like, uh, no, because the sweat is the most efficient way to um, reduce your core temperature. If I would just wipe off the sweat, I would just sweat more. And I was like, oh, this is, it was very like telling of, <laughs> It was very telling of his character. Is like he, he works to be uh, as efficient pos- as efficient as possible, and not in a negative way, in a very positive way. Uh, and that I think that's why he can he can do as much as he does, right? And so I um, I think I got a little off track there, but the, the um, we were talking about isolation, yeah, right. So well, I talked to Quincy about this topic too, and he was like, I think he's. I hope he doesn't mind recording this, but he said something like. He's like, sometimes I don't even feel like a human. I just feel like a disembodied 
thing that is online all the time. And occasionally I have interactions in the real world that reinforce my interpretation that I am a human and that I am not a disembodied online entity. And I was like, I get that feeling sometimes too. He's a, he's a, if I didn't, if I had never met him, I would assume he was a robot or some <laughs> sort of advanced AI. Cause he's just, I don't know how he does it. He's just constantly working. And then, um, he has a family, he raises a family. He's like, every time I'm in a Skype meeting with him, you know, his baby's there. So he's, he's always with, um, his baby Jocelyn, which I think she's maybe like a year and a half. Don't quote me on that. I can't remember exactly. But yeah, he's, he's, um, he's a very efficient person and, uh, he's a very, like, he may say that, but he's a very human person as well. He's probably one of the most human people I've ever met. Yeah. He's just a very interesting person. All right. Well, um, Berkeley. Thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Uh, the time flew by talking to you. Um, and I guess uh, just to plug it, since uh, we didn't talk about it, um, you are part of Real World React, which is a meetup and soon-to-be more prevalent online organization around React. So if you are a React developer, maybe you want to check out Real World React. RealWorldReact.com. Okay. And then uh, we're on meetup, meetup.com slash real dash world dash react and then if i can uh we also have a uh hackathon coming up uh we're calling it reactathon so reactathon.com uh it's going to be leading up to the react conf in march i think it's been officially announced so i can say it now it's going to be uh the react conf is i think the 13th and 14th and so that's a monday tuesday the saturday sunday we're having a hackathon and then the week leading up to it we're going to have we're going to have a, a meetup at, mm, I'm not going to say where, because I can't remember exactly okay. which company is doing what, but we're going to have a, a huge meetup on the Tuesday before uh, the conference and then workshops the whole week up leading up to it and a job fair. Cool. Well, Berkeley, thanks for coming on the show. Awesome. Thank you for inviting me.